This is Tom Shrewsbury with Reflections for the Covenant Network. As we look at the news of the day, focusing on those individuals whose names and faces are easily recognized by their careers in fields such as the theater, sports, politics, business, or whatever, you know the ones I mean, the ones getting most of the publicity. Or maybe notoriety would be a better word. Their names and faces are legion. The ones the photographers get the big money for those candid shots we see. And we don't seem to tire of them. We look for more stories and see their pictures of the tabloids. Well, there must be a lot of money in it because they're near the cash registers and just about every grocery store or service station checkout lane in the country. But you know... What's sad is the fact that there are so many people, so many really good people, whose lives go unnoticed. And they could be inspirations to us all, but they're often just quietly ignored. And the real irony is that so often these are the ones we should look up to, the ones who quietly in their own ways serve God do good, and and leave a legacy that endures. We don't seem to remember that fame is fleeting, but eternity is forever. And while it doesn't often make the evening news, the real lessons of life, devotion, and, and respect for God are really all around us, and they have been for countless years. And the goodness of some of these people and the lives they've led have Well, they've endured down through the centuries. I sometimes wonder if the next century will remember Paris Hilton, or you can fill in the names. But today I'd like to tell you the story of a young woman who was born in what we now know as New York State, but before there was a New York, further back even before there was a United States. Well, to set the stage, as they say, we have to use our imagination as we travel back in time to the year 1656. This part of what is now New York State was inhabited by Native Americans, and ten years or so earlier, the Jesuits had arrived to bring the words of Christianity to the various peoples who inhabited that area that, that stretched all the way up into Canada. There were many, many, the majority of which who rejected the priests whom they referred to as the black robes, some so antagonistic that martyrdom resulted. And about this time, the various tribes had banded together in a loose confederation for their own protection. For example, the Algonquins were bitter enemies of the Mohawks, who were members of the Iroquois League. Well, the Algonquins traded with the French, while the Iroquois traded with the Dutch and often acquired arms they used in battle. And to add fuel to the fire, the French also had missionaries spreading this new religion of Christianity. But fighting and wars had helped decimate the ranks of the Iroquois, and so the prisoners they took were often assimilated into their own nation to help their population. Such was the case that brought about the capture of a young Algonquin woman named Cahenta, which in their language roughly translated to flower of the prairie. 
Gehenta was an attractive and kind young woman who had been baptized a Christian in her native Canada. Now, Christians were not generally allowed to be accepted into the tribe's membership, and instead they were usually executed by fire. But fortunately for Kahenta, a powerful Mohawk brave named Kenny Ronqua found her looks and personality attractive and took her as his wife. While he was not a Christian, his love for her and his kind nature allowed her to continue as a Christian. Well, more or less. And to their marriage came a beautiful daughter whom they called Little Sunshine. And a few years later, the couple was blessed with the addition of a baby boy whom Little Sunshine labeled Atsiketa, which in Mohawk meant sweet. Kahenta would speak to her children about the joys she had found in her Christian faith, even though it was almost impossible for her to practice it on a regular basis. In this era, there was strength and everyone following the same pattern, which included respect for what they called the Great Spirit. And for Christianity, well, it was definitely not included in their customs. And it's often very difficult for us to imagine what life was like back in the mid-17th century. Life was so different. For the Mohawks, families lived together in what was called longhouses, wooden structures made with primitive tools of the time where often several families would live and hunt together. In the longhouse in which Kenironqua and Kahenta and their two children lived, Christianity was, to say the least, barely tolerated, and that was only because of Kenironqua's love for Kahenta and their two children. While families living so close together shared many things that were good, they also shared in what was tragic. Around the time when Little Sunshine was about four years old, a smallpox epidemic broke out and quickly swept through the longhouses of the village. The entire family of Kenaronqua became victims of the killing disease, which claimed the lives of Kenaronqua, his wife, and, and small son. Of course, smallpox also infected Little Sunshine, and she lingered between life and death for for many days. But slowly, with the help of God, she started to improve, and though smallpox would leave an indelible imprint on her, slowly little sunshine regained some semblance of health, though she would never be strong or robust. Plus, she carried, for the rest of her life, pot-marked scars on her face, as well as weakened eyesight that would forever mar her vision. Now, Native Americans looked after their own, and relatives were quick to react to difficulties within their own families. It was expected. It was a way of life. Kenirankwa's brother, Lorano, was quick to respond. So, little Sunshine's uncle, Lorano, moved into the vacant space in the longhouse with his wife, her sister, and another adopted daughter, as well as little Sunshine, whom they also adopted and and they cared for her as their very own. Because of her weak eyesight, Little Sunshine was given a new name, 
that reflected her poor eyes that often caused her to bump into or stumble over objects in her way. Now, it just so happened that there was a Mohawk name for a person who did exactly that thing, and that that name was, well, Little Sunshine was given the name Tekawitha. And it's also important to mention that another trait, or perhaps obligation, was that the new generation growing up were expected to provide for their parents when they became old or unable to care for themselves. Consequently, great care was always exercised by parents in seeking just the right mate for their children to ensure their own long-term security. And they didn't leave this to chance. The young were expected to learn many skills. The boys, hunting and fishing, learning the intricacies of battle and what men were supposed to be. And the little girls were taught the skills of cooking, making moccasins, beads, ornaments, items of clothing, and the necessities for the longhouse. Lower Rano loved his family and also developed a, a great love for little Tekawitha. Oh, not because of her handicaps, which were largely overlooked, rather because even as she reached the age of eight or ten, her kindness, her gentle attitude, and care for others became more and more evident. However, Lorado, as well as the village chief, was a strong foe of this Catholic religion that was being spread by the black robes from France. Now, strangely, in little Tekawitha's mind, there was a nagging memory that would not go away. It was a strange memory for her. It had nothing to do with the great spirit that her family worshipped. In the dark and misty recesses of her mind, she kept recalling a name that her mother had taught her. It never really left, and the name, the name was Jesus. Around Tekawitha's tenth year or so, more battles raged between the Iroquois and the tribes from the north until finally the superior numbers from the north emerged victorious, and with their victory came also the black-robed missionaries, who in the peace treaty signed by the Iroquois nations were allowed full access to teaching the word of Christ. As I mentioned, matchmaking to provide the parental support in old age started when the members of the tribe were very young. Everywhere Tekawitha went, members of the tribe, men and women, young and old alike, quickly recognized her kindness and, and the many skills she had acquired. Well, this would certainly make her an attractive mate to a brave warrior. Even at the age of ten or thereabouts, her adoptive family would invite other young boys and their families to visit them in the hope of a future union with the young children. Over and over, Tekawitha would politely announce that she was not interested in marriage, which would enrage Lower Rano's wife and sister-in-law. When questioned as to why she was not interested in marriage, Tekawitha apparently brushed the questions aside ever so kindly, adding that she would make her decision a little later. Following the aftermath of the battles that were lost and peace restored, 
three of the black robes visited the Mohawk village and true to the terms of the peace agreement, Lower Rano as chief had to welcome the missionaries. Tekawitha's distant memory of this Jesus became a reality, and she was mesmerized by everything she was taught. She found a whole new world that was opening up for her, and she could barely contain her enthusiasm. She was now about 11 years old. Perhaps one of the most fortuitous situations was that Tekawitha was assigned to look after them and see that their needs were met. She was impressed by the actions of the black robes. She was further impressed by their good manners, their kindness, and, of course, their sincerity, and the stories they related about this man, Jesus. While Tekawitha was impressed by the priests, they were doubly impressed by Tekawitha, who didn't just want to listen to the stories but ask questions, one after another, and although she was always known for her kindness, another trait was being observed, and that was, although she was not yet baptized, she was becoming devout to the point that her life was focused on this new religion and everything that it required of her and even more. As she approached her middle teens, her aunt and her stepmother became increasingly angry at Tekawitha's constant refusals to try to meet eligible braves of the tribe. She had hinted to the missionaries that she would prefer not to marry, but to focus her life on serving Jesus, who had done so much for her. Doing the regular chores that were required of her, Tekawitha stumbled over something and injured her foot so badly that the pain made it very difficult for her to even walk. While other maidens of the tribe ventured into the woods gathering supplies and involved in other strenuous activities, Tekawitha was unable to participate, and rather than waste time gazing out the window, this would give her the opportunity of saying the prayers that the black coats had taught her and a chance for her to speak to this Jesus in her own words. Tekawitha's family was becoming more and more agitated by her lack of interest in marriage and not following many of the traditions of the Mohawks. They chided her constantly, asking what would happen to her when she was old, who would take care of her but her answer was always much the same. God will provide. Every day was the same for the Mohawks, and the black robes had spoken of Sunday, the Sabbath, and obediently Tekawitha announced that she would not participate in the tribal workdays on a Sunday. Consequently, her family announced that if she would not work on Sunday, she would not eat on Sunday, and so they withheld all food from her on this holy day. In Tekawitha's mind, if Jesus wanted her to fast and do penance, well, she would fast on Sunday rather than do anything that might displease him. Over the past weeks, uh, Father de Lamberville had been giving her instructions, and he was amazed at her reactions and, and the keen understanding that she had of what she had been taught. She listened to what he said, considered it in her heart, and followed the instructions to the letter, regardless of how the tribe reacted. 
ignoring the tribal rejections Father de Lamberville had taught her about this Catholic religion for about eight months. She could hardly wait for a closer union with her God, and on Easter Sunday morning in 1676, along with two other girls, she trembled at the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, as she received her baptism. And with her baptism, Father de Lamberville also gave her a new name, Catherine, after St. Catherine, as we know it. However, in the Mohawk language, the name was a little different. Catherine was Kateri. She was now Kateri Tekawitha. Now, Kateri, she thought, I prayed hard before. I will pray even harder now. Her form of prayer took not only words, but but deeds, penance, and sacrifices of all kinds that would please God and make him greater while making herself smaller. As the days and months passed, members of the Mohawks treated her badly, with things going from bad to worse, and the only reaction they had from Tekawitha was a gracious smile as she continued to help them in any way possible, as long as it would not displease God. Now that she had become a Christian, the torments from members of her tribe increased to a constant barrage of insults and slights, which she bore with her customary gentleness and a smile. I'm sure it could be said she smiled, and when she smiled, she felt that God was smiling too. After all, God watches everything we do. Perhaps we sometimes forget that. Months went by with no improvement in her treatment, and now even the children joined in the harassment. Somewhere, Tekawitha heard about a group of women who lived together in a place called Montreal, where they did not marry, but lived their lives solely for the greater glory of God as they devoutly practiced their Catholic faith. They had a name that was strange to her. They were called Ursulines. Well, the treatment Kateri was receiving did not go unnoticed by Father de Lamberville, who became increasingly concerned about her safety and arranged for her to go to Montreal where she could spend some time at a Jesuit monastery. Through the help of the good father, a number of other Native American converts who protected her, they transported her about 200 miles north to the mission of St. Francis Xavier in the year 1677. A few years before, two saintly women founded a hospital and a school for children of the area, as well as another school in the nearby mission of La Montagna to meet the educational and religious needs of the Native Americans. There, the women lived as in a convent, wearing traditional habits and were dedicated to instructing the children about the wonders of God and, and how they could serve him. Well, when Kateri saw this, her, her dreams took flight. Inspired by what she had seen about convent life and with several other Native American women with whom she had become acquainted, Kateri expressed a, a desire to form their own community of nuns. 
The religious who knew Kateri and were well aware of her spirituality felt that she really belonged in a cloister where her devotions to God would not be distracted by the secular world around her. While local church authorities thought her idea had great merit, the concept of an order comprised entirely of Native American women was brand new. So the timing was not exactly right, but someday in the future it could be a reality. That was a dream of Kateri's. Disappointed, but not undaunted in her desire to give her life to Christ as a nun, she requested that she be granted special permission to take a vow of perpetual chastity, and indeed that vow was made on the Feast of the Annunciation on March 25, 1679. After taking her vows, Father Scholenek, her priest, reported that she, and I quote, she entered variably into the joy of the Lord. Well, returning to the tribe, it didn't take long for the pressure for her to marry started all over again, and one can only imagine the mental anguish she experienced as her relatives constantly nagged her to become a wife. This concept was so indelibly ingrained in their traditions that her vow of chastity could not be understood. In their minds, as she grew old, she would need someone, a family, to care for her. Her belief that God would provide was, well, it was something new and, and radical to them. As an offering to compensate for the sins of the world, Kateri would perform tremendous acts of penance, such as sleeping on thorns, walking barefoot in the snows as she offered prayers to God, as well as many other forms of penance. Never physically strong, her friends noticed that her health was weakening and sought the aid of Father Sholenek, who made her promise to temper the penances she was offering. But her physical health was rapidly deteriorating. And as the snow covered the earth and the winter winds blew in 1680, the pain and the increasing illness caused Kateri to become even weaker. So weak, in fact, that she was now unable even to visit her beloved chapel. And as the days progressed, her physical suffering also increased. Everyone knew that the end was coming, and, and her bridegroom waited at heaven's gate. The priests brought her Holy Communion because she had become so weak they were afraid to even bring her to the chapel on a stretcher. Well, this in itself was unusual because at this time in history and at that frontier location, it was the tradition not to risk a danger to the Eucharist by removing it from the chapel. Well, her health continued to decline even more radically. Her skin darkened, and with her illness, she was now barely able to move. A few days later, on April 17, 1680, the priest again brought her the Eucharist and watched with her focusing half-blind eyes on the Eucharist with supreme joy, and as, as it was given to her, her eyes became radiant and smiles appeared on her face, and she recited the name Jesus Mary over and over until she spoke no more as she joined her bridegroom in heaven. 
She was just 24 years old. Father Cholinet would later recount that as her body was moved from her cot to a stretcher, her skin seemed to lighten, and people who were present gasped as her body became radiant, and the pockmarks that had marked her face since childhood completely disappeared, and the body, tortured by pain and suffering, appeared glorious and beautiful. She was buried appropriately near a large cross on the banks of the river where people could come and visit her grave. After her burial on Holy Thursday, those who had known her began to pray for her help before the throne of God, and countless miracles were attributed to her intercession. Those who knew her by the life she led and her unfailing devotion to God believed her to be a saint. In 1688, the local bishop visiting her grave stated, Here one may see in the person of Kateri Tekawitha, the first Christian virgin which the Iroquois nation has given to the Church of Jesus Christ. God has permitted many wonders to take place at the tomb of this wonderful girl." Strange and wonderful events were taking place at her tomb. The sick and the lame were being cured, and packets of dirt from near her grave were taken and sent to the ill throughout the territory with many more reports of cures. And it was written of her that she was performing as a servant of God. One of the priests who had known Kateri was working in the church a few days after her funeral, and as he looked up from his task, he saw Kateri standing beside him, looking radiant and full of joy. And then he saw flames at a stake and the church upside down. Well, naturally, this puzzled him, and and the thought was in his mind. He couldn't get rid of it, and for several years he never understood its meaning. Then, Three years later, a tornado struck the church with three priests inside that threw the building around, and when it settled, the priests were dazed but unharmed, and the burning stake was foretelling a war with the Onondaga tribe in which a Christian was captured and burned at the stake. Anastasia, who later became like her adopted mother, was awakened from sleep one night when she heard Kateri's voice saying, Mother, look at me. Anastasia opened her eyes and saw Kateri standing near her, looking beautiful in brilliant light, holding a shining cross and saying, She loved the cross while on earth, but loved it even more in paradise. One of the priests saw Kateri a second time, and during this apparition, she expressed a desire that he paint a portrait of her, hoping that this would be an inspiration for others for an increase in faith. Well, the good father had difficulty in completing the portrait, and when it was finished, it was considered rather strange. However, the new portrait was responsible for an immediate miracle, and her work was just beginning from some place very high. Word of the life of Kateri Tekawitha spread like wildfire, and she was referred to as the Lily of the Mohawks. 
There were large numbers of requests from bishops in the United States and, and many others who sent petitions to Rome asking the Pope to introduce the cause for canonization of the Little Lily of the Mohawks. On January 3, 1943, Pope Pius XII convinced that she had lived a life of heroic virtue, declared her venerable. And in 1980, Pope John Paul II raised her to the title of Blessed, one step and one miracle away from sainthood. And during the ceremony, the Pope said, and I quote, The Church has declared to the world that Kateri Tekawitha is blessed, that she lived a life on earth of exemplary holiness, and that she is now a member in heaven of the communion of saints who continually intercede with the merciful Father on our behalf. And he added, May you be inspired and encouraged by the life of blessed Kateri. Look to her for an example of fidelity. See in her a model of purity and love, and turn to her in prayer for assistance. By her life, she is an inspiration for all of us and taught us we don't have to move mountains to please God. It is in the small actions of our everyday life that our faith is proven and that God does come first. Let us always remember Blessed Kateri Tekawitha, the Lily of the Mohawks, a tender flower in the garden of God. This is Tom Shrewsbury with Reflections for the Government Network.